You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Well, Wednesday night is our first summer nights of 2019. If you guys have been at Discovery the past several years, you know what this is. If you haven't, summer nights, I love it. I'm excited. Uh, it is the last, mu- last Wednesday of May, June, and July. And it is just this like feast, this awesome time that we come together. Um, to, to paint a little picture, we have a ton of food. This time we're doing hammers and hot dogs. We're doing little cobets. We got sides. We got desserts. It's going to be amazing. Uh, like there's just a ton of food, all you can eat. I'm planning on wearing Sarah's old pregnancy pants. Like it's awesome, right? And so... Uh, you get to eat whatever you want, and then, as I was sharing with First Hour, um, if there is spiritual gifts of games, Elliot has it. Elliot Gregory is amazing at this, and, I, and I'm not just saying that like a, a funny comment. I mean that like I believe God has gifted him in, in the ability to, to bring out the fun out of each of us, to be able to bring out that and be able to find that fun and that joy that comes from God. And so we always do these games, and it's a lot of fun uh, for all ages, and it's a time of fellowship, and we'll have conversations, and we're planning on doing it like banquet-style tables, so you'll be sitting with people that, that you know, maybe people you don't know. It just depends on where you're sitting, and it is awesome. And so uh, I hope you can come to Summer Nights this Wednesday night. It starts at 6. Um, you don't need to bring anything, just yourself, and be ready for a good time. And, and I love these nights, and I want you to envision, like, we're having this night, and we have this, this you are stuffed. You've had all this food, and now we're playing games. Uh, we've invited the neighborhood. The, we, we always invite the apartment complex over here and pass out flyers, and, and it's just a great time to enjoy. And we see a bus pull up. And so you see this bus pull up, and we go and, and meet the bus, and as for some reason, there's this bus of people that haven't eaten in a week, that they're starving, that they're just so hungry, and they've barely ate anything, that they haven't had a big meal, let alone an all-you-can-eat meal in ages. And then you see this in their face, that not only this hunger, but just this, this disappointment, just this despair. They haven't had fellowship. They haven't had someone care for them. They haven't, certainly haven't been laughing, haven't been playing games. They haven't had a fellowship time where someone's asking, hey, how can I pray for you? And, and how can you pray for me? And, and they've just been alone. And imagine that they get off this bus and, and for some reason they arrive here. God directed the bus and they arrive and we say, hey, I'm glad you're here. Why don't you come get some food? And we go with them and, and we grab the plates and we're like, here, what can we put on there? And, and we get the hamburger for them and the hot dog and, and chips and corn and all this. And we take them to a table and then we say, hey, we got these games and, and this fellowship and we're trying to engage them. And some of the people are just diving in and they're eating all that they can. You can tell they haven't eaten in forever. And, and they're eating and they say, can I have a second round? Sure. And we go get them another plate and give them more. Third round? Okay. And we, you know, more hot dogs and more hamburgers and they're just diving in. And once their belly's full, they go and join in the games and they join in the conversation and they're engaged and they're part of this. And then there's others that we brought them in and we gave them a plate and we got their food and they sat down and they won't touch it. And they just continue to be hungry. And we say, hey, why don't you come play some games with us? They say, no, that's all right. And they continue to just stand at a distance. We say, hey, can, we, can we have a little fellowship time? Can I, can I be praying for you? And they say, no, no, that's, that's all right. That's not my thing. 
And it's time for this bus to go. And the bus driver honks the horn and, and everyone goes and loads up. And, and there's people that are just having a good time and they're giving high fives. They're like, hey, this was awesome, thanks. And their stomach is full and they had fun and they get on first. And then the rest of them, they get on and they have the same sad look, the same look of hunger, the same emptiness that they had when they got off. Uh, this is how the rest of the book of Acts is going to go. We see Paul is going on these missionary journeys, and he's coming and he's bringing this feast. He's going into new towns and he's bringing this amazing message, this amazing feast of, that people could just dive into, and some of them do, and they can't get enough, and they eat and they eat and they take it in and they ask him more questions and they learn and they listen to every word. Some of them are engaged with the fellowship of Paul and Barnabas, and they're engaged and they're learning from them and they're trying to find out more, and they're asking questions and they're engaging, and, and there's people that are just soaking this up. But then a lot of the people, even though there's this feast, even though they're starving spiritually, they put up a wall and say, we don't want any part of it. They push the plate aside. They refuse to engage. And not only that, but they, they start to send Paul and Barnabas away. If you're following along in Acts, we hit chapter 13 last week. And that's where we're at. We're continuing the second half of chapter 13. And last week, Paul, Barnabas and Paul were commissioned by the church in Antioch to go out and be missionaries. That, they, that this church, this international multicultural church, said we need to go and spread the word of Jesus. And so they take Barnabas and they Paul and they, Paul and they place hands on them and they send them out and commission them. And the first stop on the trip as Barnabas is leading this trip is to his island, his island of Cyprus. This is where Barnabas is from. He has many connections as they go through town, as they go through his island. He knows someone here. He knows someone there. He's invited into a home. They have a place to stay. They have food to eat. And this is a great journey. And their, their response in Cyprus is only overwhelmingly positive. They're going from synagogue to synagogue and town square to town square, preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ. And the message gets around so much that the governor of the island calls for a private meeting with them to find out what is this you've been teaching. And they preach and they teach about Jesus Christ to the governor. And even in the midst of, of his false teacher, in the midst of the sorcerer that's there trying to dissuade the governor from obeying, the, Paul puts blindness on the sorcerer and, and, the teach, and the governor is moved by this teaching and he accepts Jesus Christ. It's been awesome. It's like the people that got off the bus that are being fed and this is, this is what this island has been. But now, now the mission journey gets a lot harder. Now there's going to be a shift and now they're going to reach the people that are starving but refused to eat. And so they leave this island, the Barnabas' island, and now they're headed to Paul's region. And it makes sense, right? They're going on this missionary journey. Hey, well, let's start off with our two hometowns. Let's start off with our home regions. And so they go to, to Barnabas' island, and then now they're headed to, to the area of Tarsus, where, where Paul is from. Uh, the town they're going to is about 200 miles away, but it, in general, it's the same area. In general, he understands the culture. He understands the people. And so they say, let's go to your place. And so there, we're going to see a shift here in Acts. There's a shift here in chapter 13 that they go from this little island. Now they go, and, and this journey suddenly becomes hard. Everything becomes hard from this point on through Acts. They face oppression. They face struggles, even on the journey. Where they go, leave from Cyprus, they're going to go on, the, on a boat to get off the island, and they're going through pirate-infested waters. This is where the pirates would often invade, and so even that is risky. They land on a port city that's known for piracy, known for scandals, and, and this is where they go 
worried about maybe theft or being beaten. They go and they go on this journey and it's a rugged, rough terrain to be able to get to this little town up in the mountains that they decided to go to first. And so they travel 100 miles and they raise an elevation 3,600 feet. Everything is difficult about this. But that's just the physical part of the trip. We're going to see in the book of Acts, everything now becomes difficult. As they're facing people that would rather starve than eat on this feast that Paul and Barnabas have for them. So like I said, there's a change, and there's a change physically, there's a change in location, but there's a big change that you're about to see in the book. Up until this point, in the beginning of 13, they listed the leaders of this church in Antioch, and they list Barnabas first, and then they list several others, and then they list, and then they list Saul, who becomes Paul. As they go on this journey, they go to Barnabas' home, and every time that they're listed, it's Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Saul. But then there's this point, this change that we saw last week when Paul steps up and, and confronts the false teacher. We see this change as they leave the island and they go to Paul's terrain. That they, we see this change that's no longer Barnabas and Paul, but it actually references Paul and his company. The focus, the leadership has changed. And I love that part of Barnabas. Because it's something that we, we would often overlook. But Barnabas was this leader. Barnabas, it was Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas was the leader that was listed first, which would have meant he was of top importance in the church in Antioch. And there's a shift that God wants him to take second step to play a backup role. And so many times, so many people wouldn't be okay with that, but Barnabas is. This man, that his name means encourager, is willing to stand back, take the role that God has for him, which might be more of a support, which might be more of an encouragement. His cousin, John Mark, leaves the journey. And we don't know why. Some people question that maybe John Mark was uncomfortable with the change in leadership. But Barnabas wasn't. Because there was always the same leader. And that was God. That's the one that he's following. And so we pick up on the story in verse 13, chapter 13, where now Paul and his company head up. From Pathos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left and returned to Jerusalem. From Perga, which was that pirate-infested port city, they went on to Poseidon Antioch, this town in the mountains. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law of the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation from the people, please speak. This group of Jewish believers... This group of Gentile believers have been kind of set apart. Like I said, it's this mountainous terrain, it's humid, it's rough, it's rugged, it's a hard place to get to. And so they are kind of set apart. Many of them have never made the journey to Jerusalem like a good, pious Jew would. Many of them have never learned from other rabbis or even seen another person that teaches the word. And so here comes this rabbi, a rabbi trained under the great Rabbi Gamil. A rabbi with great credentials, and so he comes to their small mountain town, and they say, please teach us. You're here. Will you be able to speak? Will you be able to tell us something? Tell us something that you have. What has God placed on your heart? And it's an amazing opportunity for them to hear something new, and they don't even know it's a life-changing, eternity-changing message that Paul has. They, Paul would often start their, their experiences when they'd go to a new town in the synagogue because that gave them a place with a common background. 
that we'll see in other parts of Acts that he has to go and he goes in different approaches at different times, but often he would go to a synagogue first because at least there you're talking to people that have a monotheistic worldview, people that are already beginning with the same common Lord, Yahweh. And he goes from there and he says, and he tells them this history that Yahweh had promised and brought the people of Israel along leading up to the Messiah. And the people of the Jewish people know they've been longing for this Messiah. And that's where Paul gives us background. And then he says, the Messiah has been here. And so that's what he does here. And we're going to kind of, I'm going to go over, abbreviate some of this, this message. It's the longest sermon that Paul has in the book of Acts. And we're going to dive in in a few verses. But basically, Paul gives a history lesson. He says, hey, you guys know our ancestors, Abraham and so forth. And they, ended up in, and they ended up being enslaved in Egypt. And there was this great exodus. And then they wandered around for 40 years. And then God gave them the land of Canaan. And they were able to conquer all the nation. And they were there and they resided and they had their land. And then God provided for them leadership. And so Paul begins to give a history of the, the leaders. And he says it started with the, the judges and then Samuel. And then we have the king. The people wanted a king, so God gave them Saul. But Saul wasn't a good king. And then Paul, God gave them David, who was this great king that we look up to. And then he, he's giving this history lesson. And in that, he's showing that God has provided all along. God cared for his people. God provided leadership. And he gives us history lesson to be able to bring it to the current day. And so he brings us up forth and he says, and then there was John the Baptist. And he tells about John the Baptist because all these pious Jews would know about the one that would be foreshadowing the Messiah, the one that would proclaim that the Messiah was to come. And he tells about John the Baptist and, and he tells that this is just recent. John's been here and he's been proclaiming the Messiah. That's right, the Messiah you guys have been looking forward to. As you come every week to the synagogue on Sabbath, that Messiah that we long for, that Messiah that we hope for, that Messiah that we've been praying for to come, he's been here. And so he brings this history lesson to the current. And then he has a sense of urgency. And I love this as he's talking and, and he begins to talk and, and it's not just he's sharing this history. He's not just having a conversation like you would over a meal and you're just, you're just talking to fill time. You know, you're debating what's the best movie of all time of the past 30 years. And, which, of course, is Tommy Boy. But uh, you're having this debate and, and you're trying to work through that. It's not like that. He's given this history lesson for a reason. And we finally get to the reason. And that reason is Jesus Christ. That reason is the gospel of Jesus that Jesus was sent for our salvation. And so he comes to this full circle and he tells them about Jesus. And then he begins to change his wording and he says, men of Israel, brethren. He connects himself to these people, people he just met. And I love this example because he connects himself to people he doesn't even know. He's never met before. But we see this all throughout the book of Acts, through Paul's letters, that these people he genuinely cares for cares for their soul, that they would go to heaven, that they would be saved, that they would in inherit the salvation from God. And I wonder how often do we have that, that passionate care for people, people that, that you've just met, complete strangers, maybe someone at, at the restaurant, maybe uh, someone at, at a store. Do you have passion that they would know Jesus? Or let alone people that you work with or your fellow students at school, maybe someone in your family. Do you have a passion that they would know Jesus that Paul has? 
do we have this passion? I, I'm inspired by this. When you see this, like, he, he calls them his brethren. He adamantly wants to tell them about Jesus Christ. I was sharing in the first hour, uh, I, I'm starting to get a complex in my neighborhood. Uh, if you come to my house, you'll see that the house across the street uh, recently put up a for sale sign. And, you know, that, that's commonplace. People come and move. But then the house to the right of us put up a for sale sign. And now it's starting to feel kind of creepy, right? That two of the houses next to us, well, the house to the left of us just put up a for sale sign like two months ago. And so now everyone's leaving and I'm pretty sure there's a common goal, which they just don't want to be our neighbors. And so um, the house to the left just sold. And to top it off, um, I went to meet him and he said, oh, are you the, are you the preacher? And I was like, oh, he already knows who we are. And the word's out. And so I said, yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, and he said, oh, by the way, we got two dogs, and we're putting up a big fence. It's like, oh, that's not for the dogs. And so the first thing he does when he gets there, they have this giant fence. And so I'm, I'm worried that the other house is going to put up a fence. And, and so, but do we have that passion for a new neighbor? Neighbors move into all of our neighborhoods. Do you have a passion to go meet them and tell them about Jesus? To go bring them to church, to be able to connect with them? That Paul has that passion with people he hasn't even met. And I love to see that in him. And so the passage continues. And if you have your Bibles, we're picking it up on Acts 13, verse 38. And I love this verse as we get back into it. Therefore, my friends, he has that connection there, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. He's talking to people that have been trying to earn their salvation. That have been trying to earn their way into, the, into, the, into heaven. And they can't seem to do it. They're trying to follow this list of rules and list of laws. And nobody's perfect. So they have to make sacrifice after sacrifice. They, they have to keep seeking forgiveness after forgiveness. And he's saying, guys, what the law of Moses couldn't do, Jesus has already done. The forgiveness of your sins is here. What a life-changing message. It's a message that you and I are kind of used to. But imagine this is the first time you've heard such a thing. I'm forgiven? I don't have to keep doing these, these ritual sacrifices. Us in our little rural town, we can't make it to Jerusalem. And so we feel even more like sinners. We feel even more distant from God. You're telling me that, that forgiveness is here? That Jesus came and died for me? And so he shares this message to them. And then he's clear to give a warning. Verse 40 says, Take care of what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. He gives this warning, hey, I got this amazing news, but don't blow it. I have this feast to give you. I have this food, and it's food in abundance. Don't walk away starving, because destruction's going to come if you turn away, if you turn against this. The passage continues, verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. What a great phrase, right? 
to continue on in the grace of God, continue on following your Lord, to continue on in the grace, and that grace is the forgiveness of your sins, to continue on in the knowledge that Jesus Christ is alive and he died for you, to continue on in this throughout this week, to continue on and that we'll meet in the mornings at the well, that we'll meet at the, at the town square, to continue on to learn and dive more into who this Jesus is, to continue on in this grace. And so this continues on throughout the week, and people here, and people are meeting, and Paul and Barnabas are invited into homes and invited into places, and they share, and they share, and they tell, and the word gets out, and a week has gone by. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. As we started, we talked about Barnabas. It used to be Barnabas and Paul. It used to be Barnabas was a leader. And now it's Paul and his companions. Pride wasn't a struggle with Barnabas. Because he was focused on God. On what God wanted in God's message. And so we have that example of Barnabas. And now we have the Jews. These pious Jews. These religious, zealous Jews. These jealous Jews whose pride has gotten in the way. Because there's this new message that the Messiah is to come and the Messiah is for everyone. And so pride says, no, no, we're his people. And this message is that the Messiah not only is to come, but the Messiah was here. The Messiah died, rose again. He's here for you. You've missed it, but you still have the chance. And the pride says, no, we couldn't have missed it. We couldn't have made that mistake. And so pride gets in the way and they begin to heap insults to them and fight Paul and Barnabas. The passage continues, Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We have to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourself worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. It's eternal life. That, that's the, path, the words that our, our scripture uses, our, our translation uses, eternal life. And, and the real translation, the Greek translation, would be the, the age to come. And that seems like a, a weird concept, and so we kind of we go with eternal life, and that's more something that we can, can put our graphs around if, if that's possible. That eternally with God, that we eternally live with him, that we'd be eternally in fellowship with Jesus. This is what this eternal life means. But at the time of Paul, there was two ages, there was two time periods that they saw. There was the present age and the age to come. And so we lived in the present age, but the Jews aspired to the age to come. The Jews aspired to what was to be, that the Messiah would be here, that there would be a time where God would establish his kingdom, that there was this, always this age to come that they were longing for, that they were pining for, that they were trying to live for and make sacrifices that they would be able to one day be in the age to come. And so Paul is saying, we're not just in the present age. When Jesus came and he died for our sins, the salvation that we've been looking for, the something that we've been pining for, is here. You are now in the age to come. Jesus has come and died. And so he's saying that the age to come is not just for the Jews anymore. It's for the Gentiles as well. 
And this is a mind-blowing concept. It's like two sons that their father is incredibly wealthy, and he has this grand estate, houses all across the world, cars and boats and stocks and, and, and tr trusts and all kinds of things. And there's two sons, and one, the younger son, he knows he's not getting any of it. It's kind of been established. Everybody knows that. He's hoping that maybe he'll get some crumbs left over from the older brother, and the older brother knows this is all his when dad dies. So dad passes away, and they're in the lawyer's office, and the lawyer opens the will, and the will reads, my entire estate is for both of you. Not that they have to split it 50-50, but everything is for all of you. Everything is for both of you. If you want the car, you can have the car. If you want the boat, you can have the boat. If you want this house, be in this house. If you want that one, be in that one. The money, it's all yours. The stock, it's all yours. And the older son hears this and he just throws everything down and storms out of the office because he's just shocked. This was supposed to be his and his alone. He still gets it, but he's refusing to partake. But the younger son who never anticipated having anything, is blown away. All this is ours. Not all this is mine, but all this is ours. And so the kingdom of God, the age to come, the eternal life, is now for the Jews and the Gentiles. And these Jews are rejecting it. These Jews are coming to the feast, they have their plate, and they push it aside and they would rather just starve. And the Gentiles are saying, oh man, I haven't eaten in a week. Let me dig in. And they find out about the fellowship that's within the, this idea of Christianity. And they're, and they're diving into it. And they're praying for each other. And they're part of the games. And they're so excited to be part of this. And then you got the Jews that are, would rather just sit back and starve and miss the blessing. Verse 49 says, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. Someone pointed out to me that it's kind of weird, this, the wording. Usually in, the, in that time you would present that they, they spoke to the men before the women. And, and he, they pointed out to me, they said, you know why they spoke to the women first? You get the wives upset, the husbands will follow, right? And so they got all the wives upset, and the husbands are like, okay, honey, you're right. And so everyone's upset, and they run, and they push Paul and Barnabas out of the city. And then it says in 51, so they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconum. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. There's this tradition in this time of pious Jews that if you had to go to a Gentile city, if there was some reason you were in a Gentile region, as you left that town, as you left that region, you would symbolically take your shoe and you would dust and brush off the dust and brush off the dust of the other sandal. And it was a way to symbolize that that dust, that Gentile dirt is going to stay here. It was a way to say, I'm not going to bring you into my Jewish synagogue. I'm not going to bring you back to my Jewish town and back to my Jewish home. It was a symbolic way to say, forget you guys. We're not part of you. I'm too good for that. And as interesting as Jesus so often did in his ministry, he kind of flipped this tradition on its head. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the disciples two by two. 
as Elliot had talked about in the offering, they went out and they, they didn't have a coat. They didn't have a bag. God would provide for them. They didn't take extra food. They, they just went as God had called them. And then we get to this part that Jesus has sent them out and he's telling them what to do and to just leave everything behind and trust in me. And then he gets to verse 14 of chapter 10 of Matthew. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town. And the towns that Jesus was sending them to weren't Gentile towns. These were Jewish towns. These were people that should know better. These were people that were God's people. And Jesus is saying, if they, if they reject you, shake the dust off your feet of that Jewish town and move on. And so this is the scene that we see Paul and Barnabas. The Jews have come at them and attacked them. The Jews are pushing them out of town, probably threatening them with physical violence if they don't leave. And so they end up deciding to go. And as they're leaving town, as this mob is at the, at the town gates, yelling at them, chanting at them, they do a symbolic gesture to brush the dust off their shoes. Because they did what God had called them to. They brought them the feast. They brought them the word of God. They brought them the feast, this great news, this fulfilling news of the salvation of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sins. And if the people didn't want to eat, they can't do anything about it. If these Jews would rather starve than come to this feast, it's out of their control. And so as we wrap up this, this chapter, as we wrap up this story, I want you to picture being at this feast, this feast that you have, this knowledge of Jesus Christ, this great fulfilling feast. And, and for some of you, you might be there and you might have this plate, but you've just never taken a bite. Up to this point, you're just starving. And I want to invite you that if you need want to be part of God's family, if you want to know more about Jesus Christ and, and this forgiveness of your sins, to come see myself, see one of the leaders of the church, see the person sitting next to you and tell them, I need Jesus in my life. I don't want to just follow him. I want to be saved by him. I want my life changed by him. I want to eat at this feast that you've given me. And then at the same time, I want to encourage you. If you have already pulled up to this table and you began to eat and you're part of the family of God and you're at this feast, there's plenty of food for everyone. Who in your life do you need to bring closer to Jesus? Is it a coworker? Is it a new neighbor with a fence? Is it a student? Is it someone in your home? Who is it that God has put in your life that you need to invite to this feast? Because they need to eat. They're starving. We see Paul has this passion for these people. Passion for, for people he just met because it's their souls that he's passionate about. And do we have that same passion? Do we have that same desire for the souls of everyone we know? that they would come and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior and receive the forgiveness of their sins. This idea of feast, I love throughout the Bible, Jesus does many miracles and many stories and many intimate moments, and many of them revolve around food. And one of those 
was in an upper room in a, in a house on the edge of Jerusalem. And he invited the disciples, and I believe he invited you and me. As he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, eat this in remembrance of me. As he poured out the wine, and he said, drink this in remembrance of me. That we would remember his death on the cross and his resurrection. That we would remember this feast that we have to take part of the forgiveness of our sins, of grace and mercy, and being justified to him. And so around the room, we have four stations of communion. And if this is your first time here, I want to encourage you to come and take the bread and just dip it in the juice and, and go ahead and partake there at the station or on your way back. And spend this time to reflect on who Jesus is and about this amazing feast that he has given us of salvation and of forgiveness. And as you come back to your seat, as we, as we transition to one final song, who else do you need to invite to this dinner? Who else could you reach out to and tell them, hey, there's a party going on. This is a party for Jesus. There's a feast going on. He has given us all that we need. Come on over. Let me tell you about it. I'd love to see you eating too. Because I was starving like you at one time. Now I'm fed. And there's no reason for any of us to starve. Because Jesus came and died for each of our sins. If you'll pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your love and care. And we thank you that you have died for us. That there is this feast that we can be part of. There is this celebration. That celebration of the forgiveness of our sins because of the amazing, painful, sacrificial act that you did on the cross because of the glorious, redeeming act of rising again three days later. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that, that doesn't know Jesus as their personal Savior, that they would come and they would talk to, talk to one of us to be able to accept, accept you. And God, I pray for those of us that have accepted you, that you would place on our hearts right now, who else do we need to bring to the table? Who else do we need to bring to this party? And God, I pray for each one of us here as we go to this time of communion. And I thank you for the forgiveness of our sins through the blood of your Son. In your name.